1: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today I want to start off by telling a short story. So in the second or third century CE in Roman Britain, in the settlement that is now the English city of Leicester, there was a Roman named Servandus, and Servandus discovered that his cloak was missing. Not just missing, he knew it had to have been stolen. But who stole it? Well, he'd have to draw up a list of suspects. He didn't know for sure. Now, Servandus was not Pliny the Younger. He was not an elite. He was not some rich big shot with diarrhea of the pen. Hey, we love Pliny on this show, though. Uh, we do, but he he was a rich elite who had diarrhea of the pen. True uh, not one of these people, one of these power people who had their memoirs preserved for us. So how do we know about the stolen cloak of this common person, Servandus? Well, we know about it. Because in the mid-2000s, researchers from the University of Leicester working at a site within Leicester dug up a rectangular sheet of lead about seven inches by three inches carved with an inscription, a curse. It was an entreaty to a god to smite his enemy for stealing from him. And it reads, quote, To the god Maglus I give the wrongdoer who stole the cloak of Cervandus, that he destroy him before the ninth day, the person who stole the cloak of Cervandus. So you got a nine-day timeline basically, nine days to get me back the cloak or may you be destroyed by Maglus. And then Cervandus uh, helpfully supplies Maglus, which may – I think it's been speculated be a Celtic word meaning prince, often names of gods or things that are just a word for prince or king like Baal or Moloch. Um but there there's a list of uh, eighteen or nineteen possible subjects, including people like and we don't know who these people are, but people like Sylvester and Germanus and Riomandus and Regulus. So who are these guys? No idea, but Servandus was comfortable condemning them to the talons of Maglus with this curse now, I know some of you are probably wondering, well, who stole the cloak uh who you know
2: who is the the thief here? My question is. Was this a nice cloak? <laughs> was it just – was <laughs> is that the thing? Was it just really nice or is he just very spiteful
0: over its uh, its loss? Well, it could be those things or it could be that Cervandus was very poor and yeah. could only afford one cloak. and You know, the, that a cloak was a significant possession to him. And so stealing a cloak from Cervandus in 2nd or 3rd century Roman Britain might be like stealing your car. Mm. Now he has
2: time and energy to put into this whole curse business though. I'm, I'm assuming there's a fee associated with
0: that. Well, that's a good point, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Yes, you raise good questions. So today, obviously, we're going to be talking about curses. And Robert, I don't know about you, but I love curse movies. I think, like, witches curse movies are really fun. They're one of my favorite genres of horror. Like a witch puts a curse on somebody, and you got to figure out what to do. So in this case, you're talking about films where, where the protagonist
2: is cursed and has to work their way out. Of the curse
0: yeah now there 's a variation on this that i don 't like at all, which is like the uh, the thinner model, which i don 't mm-hmm. even want to get into the details of, but that, that is just like an unusually reprehensible movie or story in general, putting that kind of thing aside where like the person cursed really deserved it <laughs> well that 's a film that um, that explores a very common trope right where
2: the the making and the the, the spitting of curses is the domain of uh, an
0: outsider people or a a people of uh, like a a lower caste within a given society. Yeah, that's a very common trope. I don't uh, don't really like that kind as much. I like the witch curses. But we should specify for the purposes of the episode what a curse is. So a curse is an invocation of magic power to cause injury or misfortune to someone or something. It is essentially the inversion of a blessing – a blessing is a benediction; it's a wish of good will towards someone, and a curse is a malediction—a wish uh, invoking magic to cause ill will, to, or to convey ill will, and cause ill fortune on somebody else. Uh, other names would be like Schadenzuber, black magic, binding, cutting off. It's using supernatural power to hurt someone. And the invocation aspect
2: here is key because it, it's not a mere prophecy; it's not someone, uh, you know. Casting bones and saying, "Oh, this will transpire." Even saying, "This will transpire because of this transgression." No, it's a, it's, it's an appeal to, uh, to a god or some divine force to, uh, to punish, or it's just simply a, a magical punishment that uh, essentially emerges from the lips or from uh, writing and then works its, uh, its will on its own.
0: Yeah, curses are not just predictions; they are spoken into existence.
2: Now, curses are often unleashed by the gods in our our myth and our fiction, cursed, uh, placed upon individuals or groups of individuals. One thinks of, say, the curse of Eve, uh, the mark of Cain, uh, the uh, various individuals that have uh, been cursed in other uh, uh, fictions, uh, the curse of Inachus, Uh, dire words becoming dire realities. Uh, And uh, as one would expect, right, when the words are rolling off the lips of a god, all a god needs to do is speak, right, and things start happening. You also have various monsters that are uh, born from curses, ghosts that are born from curses, even animals too that are the the products of curses. I'm thinking about uh, uh, some of the Greek myths concerning spiders and uh, the curse placed on Arachne. Um, pumpkinhead's a curse. Pumpkinhead's a curse. <laughs> uh the werewolf is often a curse as well. Uh-huh. Uh so we we have a number of different possibilities. I kind of forgotten about Pumpkinhead.
0: Exactly how Pumpkinhead
2: worked in the horror movie. It was a witch's curse.
0: Yeah, a guy he he wants revenge on some teenage motorbikers so he goes to a witch to cast a curse on them. Mm. Not a great film, but it does have some great monster effects. And there are any number of cursed
2: villains uh, in fiction, right? I mean, everybody loves a good, good villain with some sort of significant curse placed upon them. Uh, for instance, uh, in Big Trouble in Little China, we're told that Lo Pan is cursed uh, by China's first sovereign emperor, uh, Qin Shi Huang, and uh, he has the, the curse of no flesh. Interestingly enough, uh, we'll return to Lo Pan in a bit. Oh, well, I look forward to that. Now uh, we also would be remiss if we didn't uh, mention our old f- friend uh, uh, Connor McLeod, Connie Mac. <laughs> the uh, is essentially a, a version of the wandering immortal character, a character that is that is to some extent cursed with immortality. Uh, this is always a, a lovely a trope in fiction and mythology, folklore as well. The thing that might
0: seem a blessing, but. Is actually a curse. Oh yeah, like the idea that uh, when Jesus prophesied that uh, there was at least someone standing there who was watching him preach, who would not pass away before the kingdom of God came with power. Um, that you know that that has led to the idea of the wandering Jew. That someone standing there that mm-hmm. day is actually immortal and still walking around.
2: Right. There's an there's another variation on this theme. Uh, there's uh, I believe it's a Russian tale. Um, or at least Eastern, Eastern European tale, uh, called The Soldier and Death. Anyone who's a fran- fan of uh, Jim Henson's The Storyteller series, there's a wonderful uh, rendition of that little number. But it, it, in this story, the, the soldier eventually is cursed with a form of immortality because he's basically um, uh, frightened everyone. Death is afraid of him. The devils are afraid of him. Nobody will let him into heaven or hell. Oh, that's a
0: good story. Uh, so I wanna bring it back to to the curse invoking Magalus against the person who stole the cloak of Cervantes. So I mentioned that this was inscribed on a lead tablet, right? And it turns out that there are thousands of curse tablets like this from the ancient world. Uh, This one, like most of them, is a small lead or pewter sheet on which a curse is inscribed with a stylus. And uh, sometimes they'll be rolled up into kind of a scroll, like Mm -hmm. the metal will be rolled up. And one thing that you can discover by reading various curse tablets from antiquity – Is that an extremely common genre of curses in actual history appears to consist of curses against people who stole things from you? Hmm. And one quote I came across that I thought was interesting uh, Richard Buckley, co director of the University of Leicester Archaeological Services, who was involved in. That discovery uh, said, quote, it has been suggested on the basis of name forms and the value of items stolen that the curses relate to the lives of ordinary people rather than the wealthy and that they were perhaps commissioned by the dedicator from a professional curse writer. So, So generally here, we're not dealing with rich people coming to do curses. We're dealing with common people dealing with common problems like the theft of an item from their from their person or from their house. And when that gets stolen and they don't know what to do, they can go, say, to a scribe and pay that person, you know, somebody who's literate, and pay that person to write out a curse on a tablet for them.
2: Hmm. Well, you know, I think we can all understand and, and relate to this uh, this impulse. If you've ever been a victim of a crime uh, like this, some, you know, theft, uh, for instance, and, and uh, the police are like, yeah, there's nothing we can do. Sorry, you're just out, however much money you lost on that you mm-hmm. know, iPhone charger or whatever that was stolen out of your car. Uh, and then you, uh, you know, what what what's left to do? Maybe spend a few dollars and, and curse the individual.
0: Right. I mean, what percentage of small thefts are actually solved and you get your stuff returned? I would have to guess almost none.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Now, now uh, this does make me think, though, that if I were a professional um, uh, curse tablet uh, manufacturer mm-hmm. in olden times – It sounds like the the best thing you could do to to drum up business is to go around stealing random things from people (laughs) and just like burying them somewhere Uh Uh, uh, because then people are going to get pissed off and they're going to say, who stole my cloak? And then they're going to go buy another tablet from you.
0: Well, I would guess that would depend on you not believing that the curses are efficacious. Hmm. Otherwise, you'd just be accumulating curses that would actually harm you.
2: Well, I would – I guess yeah. In this model, the uh, the individual making the curses is in on the game.
0: You know, like, yeah.
2: they can't be a true
0: believer. They have to be, uh, uh, you know, the, the the con artist in the scenario. Well, that is something that we could definitely talk about because there are obviously differences in belief in the power of curses and witchcraft all throughout history. Uh, You know, we we find these curse tablets all throughout the ancient Mediterranean. There are these wonderful artifacts of evil magic. Or, you know, you could think of it as evil because we usually think of curses as evil. But really the people who were who were commissioning these in many cases were seeking justice, you know, that they were trying to get back something that had been unfairly taken from them. But there are other varieties of curse tablets that are more just kind of a uh, a desire to get power over a rival or, to you know, a desire to hurt some kind of competitor or enemy. In Latin, the curse tablets are known as defictiones. In uh, Greek, they're known as katadesmoi. I don't know if I pronounced those correctly, but close enough. You know, you'll sometimes hear people from the uh you know, people talking about the ancient Greco-Roman world as a place of unusual reason and skepticism for its time. You know that sort of characterization of like ancient Greece and ancient Rome as places of like philosophy or something oh, like yeah. that.
2: Oh yeah, there's an there's an entire argument that uh that science and reason is is birthed solely out of uh out of uh, greco roman tradition and that uh, and that it only spreads to the far corners of the world that anything that the uh, uh you know the, the, the were that was taking place in ancient india or ancient china or mesoamerica that these these didn't really count because they hadn't been touched by uh
0: by the greco roman vibe yet now uh, obviously that's nonsense no. in fact i i don't really know i don't come across people making that argument anymore but, no but. i think I, I feel like most
2: most thinkers have, have moved beyond that. But I know that in um, uh, the demon hunted
0: world, uh, Sagan spends a little time uh, discrediting this notion as well. But the other side of that is just the belief that the ancient Greco-Roman world was this unusually reasonable and skeptical place, relatively free from superstition and paranoia about witchcraft. But the evidence indicates that just really is not the case. It might be the case among some particular you know members of the elite or the intelligentsia or something. You might read their own memoirs and find that this person in history who left a lot of writing happened to be skeptical about things. But among people in general, the ancient Mediterranean appears to have been run through with fear of witchcraft and with uh, the use of curses, even in the Roman period. Pliny the Elder writes in his Natural History in the first century CE, uh, we mentioned him a minute ago. Mm-hmm. In the middle of a section about the power of portents and spells, quote, there is no one who does not dread being spellbound by means of evil imprecations and hence the practice after eating eggs or snails of immediately breaking the shells or piercing them with a spoon. I was like, well, what is that about? (laughs) So this is from uh, the translation, the 1855 translation by John Bostock, Bostock or Bostock, however you say that. And there's a footnote that says, quote, it is a superstition still practiced to pierce the shell of an egg after eating it lest the witches should come. Oh, wow. I've been doing
2: it wrong this whole time.
0: I know. So I, I went and read a little bit more about this. Basically, the idea is that if you eat an egg and you leave the shell just sitting around, a witch can come along and prick that shell with a needle while citing the name of a person who wants to cast a curse against you and that will allow them to do a curse. And this is a common part of like sympathetic. Magic, like you touch the thing.
2: Yeah, I, but am I peeling eggs wrong? That's what I'm wondering. <laughs> because whenever I uh, peel an egg, I, like I end up just destroying the eggshell. Like uh, it looks pretty pierced to me because I've just ripped it to pieces. Well, maybe it's if they find a big shard of it and they can pierce it. I, I guess, or maybe there's this is like an, a post egg sucking scenario. Like Ooh. people are just you know putting one hole in it and sucking it out. I don't know. Oh, you but, took that to a nasty place. Well, well there's nothing wrong with eating a raw egg that way I guess I mean of the things one could be doing in in uh, in ancient Greece as egg sucking sounds reasonable
0: yeah but it leaves you vulnerable to witchcraft i guess <laughs> so uh Famously, many curse tablets have been found in the city of Bath, which was a settlement known for its hot springs used as a spa and a bath during Roman times. And uh, the goddess of these hot springs was a Celtic deity named Sulis who in many of these curses that have been found at, at Bath seems to be merged through syncretism with the Roman goddess Minerva as Sulis Minerva. I read that one of these curses from Bath is a bronze. Uh, it's for a bronze container that had been stolen. It seems like most of these also have to do with theft, and uh, the curse asked the goddess to make sure that the stolen container ended up filled with the thief's blood. Oh, that's pretty good. That that's is really good. good. That's clever.
2: Yeah, I mean, it basically comes back to that old adage: "I hope you choke on it." You know, right? So- somebody has 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 obtain something of yours or something that you feel should be yours through underhanded um, actions, mm-hmm. then you just, you just say, well, I hope, I hope you choke on that. I hope that this brings uh, about your death. And we just kind of we kind of throw that one out, but that is essentially a, a, a curse. Even if we we say it, uh, you know, kind of flippantly or comedically,
0: it's the unspoken part of "you can have it," yeah. you know, and you can have it, just meaning like, and something bad's going to happen to you. Yeah, this thing, is, this is cursed now anyway. I don't want it. But then again, a lot of these curses demand the, the the return of the item. They say like, if you don't return the item, say, you know, in nine days, may he be destroyed by the ninth day or mm-hmm. something like that. Another one, quote. Docilianus, son of Brucerus, to the most holy god Sulis, I curse him who has stolen my hooded cloak, whether man or woman, whether slave or free, that Sulis inflict death upon him, and not allow him sleep or children, now and in the future, until he has brought my hooded cloak to the temple of her divinity
2: now I like how this particular curse is nice and uh, and, and and broad uh, here you know it's it's the it's the buckshot of curses because it is uh, it is promising what problem sleeping and potentially problem uh, bearing children uh, there's a lot of room here so if one if the individual who is cursed and like knows that the curse is leveled at them like oh I think he's talking about me because mm-hmm. I totally stole that cloak uh, chances are they might encounter a situation where oh man i'm having a little trouble sleeping or i'm a, or or uh, or i'm having trouble uh, conceiving maybe it was that
0: curse well yeah you, you- in in the secular interpretation, you're trying to get the victim's mind working against them, and we can talk about that more later when we discuss like the psychological and scientific aspects of cursing. But uh, but you're also probably believing in real magic power and thinking, yeah, something bad's going to happen to this person.
2: That's true. We we do have to come back time and time again to the idea that we're we're dealing with people more often the, the common people here who do not have anything approaching the scientific understanding of the world. They right. have magical explanations for how the world works. And therefore,
0: that worldview is open to magical manipulation. Now, you mentioned that you liked the the things that had been picked out in this curse, denying you sleep and denying you children. Uh, general things that are invoked in these curses would be to like make it so the thief cannot defecate or urinate, <laughs> to make the thief bleed, to cause sexual problems, to prevent them from sleeping or eating. There's all kinds of stuff. But I wonder who picks out what goes in the curse. Is that up to the scribe who you're commissioning the curse from or is that up to you? Do you go to a scribe and say, OK? Here's what I want. I want the bleeding and I want the sexual problems. Yeah,
2: do you think it's uh, it's package based or it's a la carte? Right. I don't know. You know, I th- I think this would have been a great um a, a great curse. If you just said, "All right, whoever stole this cloak from me, every time from now on for the rest of your life, every time you stub your toe, that's me." That's this <laughs> curse. You know, that's, that, that would be a good one because nothing is worse than stubbing your toe in that second that you have stubbed it. Yeah. Um, and, and you always feel like somebody's to blame. Yes. And you need to blame someone. Usually, I, if you're me, you just curse at the uh, the coffee table like, or what have put you.
0: put that there? Yeah. But then you're <laughs> like, oh,
2: Sir Vandis, it was you.
0: <laughs> so uh, these tablets are actually – they're more than just sort of a magical curiosity. Uh, the tablets of Bath and many others have actually proven useful in helping experts understand the common vernacular language of, say, Roman Britain in the second to fourth century. Because, again, when you think about it, curse tablets are kind of like graffiti. It's a window into how written language was used by people who were not writing the kinds of Mm -hmm. works that get copied and stored in libraries and come down to us through history, you know? Like nowadays – I assume future historians will probably get to know what it was like when the average English speaker in the United States 2017 used written English because they can see it all over the internet. But in ancient Rome, unless you like wrote books that people thought were very valuable, most of the time people weren't going to see what it looked like when you were, you know, using language.
2: Side note, I wonder if uh, in hip hop, uh, like
0: a a diss track – Is considered a curse. Oh, that's interesting. Sort of. Sort of, kind of, maybe. Do you – well, I mean, there's a lot of insults, but does it actually like – does it invoke a power to wish harm upon you? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, sometimes you could say that, well, they're
2: threats, but – They're self-actualized. threats. They're like, I'm going
0: to do something to you.
2: yeah. Yeah, I guess they are they tend to be more threats than though I though I don't I don't know there might be some distracts out there. I would love to hear about any distracts uh that uh, invoke um, magical forces or sort of uh, the 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 inner workings of fate. Oh, that's good. I, I bet there are some. I bet there have to be some religious ones. Surely yeah. there's some like religious sort of distracts. Maybe they're not individual but I mean one of the big uh, <laughs> uh selling points of, of a religion and we'll discuss this more as we go forward is the idea that Uh, God or gods are going to punish those who wronged you or are wronging you or living their life in a way that you don't agree with now. There will be some sort of divine vengeance. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, to invoke that divine vengeance is essentially a curse. Like if anybody's ever stood on a street corner and yelled nasty things with a God sign
0: at participants in a parade or something, they're essentially spitting out curses. Now, they probably wouldn't think of it that way because they wouldn't think, like, I'm asking the the divine power to do something to you. They would probably think of it as saying, like, I'm just telling you what the divine power is going to do to you anyway.
2: Right. Well, yeah, their view on it is probably the same. But from this side of the curse, I feel like the two are are basically (laughs) indistinguishable. Like,
0: the guy with the sign is still the jerk in this scenario. (laughs) Agreed. Now, we have been talking about how often curses are used sort of after the fact to get back at somebody who wronged you. Usually somebody who stole something from you. Mm -hmm. But there's another way you could use an anti-theft curse which would be a curse employed preemptively against thieves... So I want to talk about medieval anti-theft curses in monastic libraries. Uh, l- last year, the British Library put up this awesome blog post by a medieval st- studies scholar named Clark Dreishen uh, highlighting medieval books in their collection that contained curses. So for example, an early 14th century copy of a 13th century Middle Dutch encyclopedia and bestiary called The Flower of Nature by Jacob von Meerland. Uh, it has its own little checkout ledger within the book, you know, like you a library book. You right. put the card mm-hmm. in. So what you have to picture here is there's a cross under which anyone borrowing the book had to sign their name and then had to swear a dear oath that if they did not return the book, they would die. <laughs> and uh, there's there's one name at least there. It's a midwife named Absterix Heifmoder who signed the oath. So we, we hope Absterix brought the book back. There's also a 14th century commentary on the harmony of the gospels inscribed with a printer's note saying anyone who steals this book will receive quote death from evil things may the thief of this book die so instead of a sticker that says this book belongs to blank
2: right. you have the uh, the, <laughs> I mean, the curse
0: it's essentially the same thing it's mm-hmm. that sticker but it's like this book belongs to blank and if you are not blank you will die right and bit, but you know
2: we're we're getting into a, an area here where we're talking about books that were Tremendously valuable in some oh, yeah. cases, and uh, and also probably had a bit of the uh, a, a bit of magic to them. You know, uh, this reminds me of the. Episode uh, that I did with Christian a while back about books that were attributed magical properties, uh, in large part based just be- because of the like the power of writing, like the ideas that were contained within it made it special.
0: Oh yeah, the author of this blog post actually points out that while some of the curses seem like overkill, I'm going to mention a couple more in a minute that are really overkill <laughs> um, for what's deserving of a simple book thief. In context, it makes more sense because of what you're talking about, like. We would today consider stealing a book to be a pretty minor petty crime, like shoplifting or something. But this was before the printing press when books were extremely labor-intensive to produce and to copy. And often if you lost a copy of the book – you weren't just out a lot of monetary value. It might have been something that you can't get another copy of. And now add to that exactly what you're saying. Maybe this book has important information about how to interpret the Bible that you consider important to saving your eternal soul. This is a book of extremely important magical significance in a way. So uh, for a medieval Christian monk, stealing or damaging someone else's religious literature was this extremely costly and perhaps even dangerous thing to do to them. Yeah, you're
2: you're stealing from the pool of collected knowledge.
0: Yeah. Now, a couple of other great uh, book curses. One was this book that belonged to the church of St. Aldate in the Gloucester States. Quote, this book is of St. Aldate. He that takes this book shall be hauled by the neck. By 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 who who's who's, <laughs> who's, who's doing the hauling? <laughs> well, presumably by Christ Himself. Also, <laughs> later in the book, a curse is attributed directly to the mouth of Jesus Christ. and the The curse is: "This book belongs to the Church of Saint Aldate. This book is one, and Christ's curse is another. He that takes the one takes the other." Amen. <laughs> A couple more, there's a 12th century manuscript known as the Arnstein Bible. It's owned by the Abbey of St Mary and St Nicholas in what's now Germany. Uh, here here is the inscription, quote, "A book of Saints Mary and Nicholas of Arnstein. If anyone steals it, may he die, may he be roasted in a frying pan, may the falling sickness and fever attack him, and may he be rotated and hanged. Amen." <laughs> I think the rotated is on the wheel. Yeah. And the falling sickness, I think they're saying that's supposed to be epilepsy. These are odd prayers.
2: I <laughs> yeah. haven't really heard "Amen" thrown on uh, anything this, uh, uh, you know, overtly ghastly in a while.
0: Well, it makes me think about the version of "Amen" that's like when someone in church yells that out after so after the preacher says something that they agree with. Mm-hmm. You know, the preacher has said something you agree with. You yell "Amen." This is like the person writing the curse being like, "That was a good curse. I agree with it." I don't know. Maybe that's not the best reading. One more. How about a mid-15th century book belonging to the Benedictine Monastery of St. Albans? It was loaned to monks studying in Oxford. Quote, This book is given in use to the brothers of Oxford by John Wethamsteed, father of the flock of the proto-martyr of the English. If anyone secretly tears this inscription or removes it, may he feel Judas's noose or forks. And I think that's referring to like being either pitchforks or maybe being impaled on forked trees. But then there are other more spiritual curses, like some of them say, you know, if you steal this book, your name will be deleted from the book of life. It's essentially excommunicating you or sending you to hell. I wonder if that was thought to be binding or, you know,
2: to what extent, too, were some of these kind of jokes? If they were – if these books were going to be uh, checked out and read by other monks – I mean, is there a certain tongue-in-cheek
0: uh, vibe going on here? Oh, I wonder. That could be the case. I mean, you can see something like that today. It's like the sign that says, uh, "So you know, employee parking only. All offenders' cars will be crushed and melted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or trespassers will
2: be eaten. That sort of thing. Yeah. Like generally, one assumes that these are, these are are not meant to be taken at face value.
0: No. I mean, I think the books were valuable, and they were legit trying to scare people.
2: Yeah. I mean, on, on one hand, I can. I can see, that, see it as a, as a legit uh, a scare tactic. But on the other, it's also just if you have like a really ridiculous outlandish um, uh, uh, curse in the book. I mean it's kind of a great reminder. It sticks in your head. It makes you realize, oh, I need to return this. I don't need to just let this sit uh, on my corner of the, the study or what have you. Uh, I, I don't need to let it gather dust in the scriptorium.
0: I need to re- return it. That's a very good point. I mean, I think we can return to that again when we discuss the the psychological impact of curses. But yeah, a curse sticks in the mind in a way that a general sort of moral injunction might not. You mm-hmm. know, just telling somebody you need to return books you've borrowed, yes, th- that's easy to forget. Saying people who don't return books they've borrowed will be roasted and rotated and hanged. Yes, uh, you know, you might not believe that, but you're more likely to remember that. Mm-hmm. Now, we've been talking about warning curses here with library books. It essentially says a curse will happen to you if you do this thing. One of the obvious examples I can think of this, which may be a real curse or maybe sort of a myth about a myth, um, would, be, would be the idea of tomb curses, like the curse of the pharaohs. You know, do not enter here or ye shall be cursed. Maybe we can address that when we come back from a break.
2: Yes, and I need to add that if you skip
0: over the ad, you will be cursed. <laughs>
2: Start saving on wireless today at visible.com monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms. Visit visible.com.
0: All right, we're back now, Robert, can you tell me about tomb curses? Is the curse of the Pharaohs real?
2: Well, if you watch enough movies, it seems like it is right. I mean, Uh it's, it's, it's become a tremendously fun trope in so many different, uh, uh, pictures that we watch, uh, fiction that we read. Um, you can't really mention curses at all else without summoning thoughts of the the curse of the pharaohs, the curse of the mummy etc um So, for starters, we should point out that, yes, you will find curses and things like curses in ancient Egyptian magic. In setting sail for the afterlife, the dead had to be prepared with spells to counter curses in the the realms beyond death. And pyramids and tombs also sometimes engage security features. Nothing like you'd find in an Indiana Jones movie, really, but certainly sturdy doors and sometimes false burial chambers as well. Uh, but really, you can encounter only a very few written warnings in tombs. And from what I've uh, read, you find them protecting the graves of common people as well as, as pharaohs. But again, very, very few cases. And they tended to promise punishment in the afterlife for things like stolen bricks. Don't steal bricks from this tomb or you're, you'll get it. Or in one case, there was a threat of crocodile attacks in the living world. Whoa. Should you mess with the tomb. That's a good one. But this idea of the, of the mummy's curse – This is largely a product of Victorian England and the popular writings of uh, one uh, individual in particular, uh, Marie Corelli, who was a novelist and mystic of the time. Um, Again, we're getting back to the idea of of just like spiritual ideas, uh, you know, unscientific ideas that are popular with people at the time. And certainly uh, Victorian England, we're dealing with – there's a lot of spiritualism going on, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that is the – that, that is the, the environment from which this emerges. So uh, Corelli, she quoted a quote-unquote rare book, <laughs> uh, which uh, she said stated that, uh, quote, the most dire punishment follows any rash intruder into a sealed tomb. diverse secret poisons enclosed in boxes in such wise that they who touch them shall not know how they come to suffer.
0: Oh, a secret poison, huh?
2: Yeah, so then it sounds good, right? You know, the idea that there's going to be secret poison, some and, or some sort of magical effect that's going to uh, punish anyone who who dares, uh, you know, break
0: open a tomb. Well, tomb desecration is uh, is widely, you know, one of the most prohibited things in many ancient law codes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I, I know it's clear as you mentioned that the ancient Egyptians were very invested in preventing tomb desecration. You're just saying that, like, uh, Achieving that by writing a curse on the tomb was not especially common, that I right. know of. Also worth noting, they they
2: universally failed at it, uh, at yeah. least in the long term. But also sometimes in the short term, I mean, we've we've discussed this before on the podcast that you'll you'll have, and uh, not not only in Egyptian traditions but in other traditions as well. It's pretty common to find evidence of tombs having been uh, broken into, raided, uh, pilfered, uh, w- like we, within a lifetime of their construction.
0: Right right it wasn't just modern people right. going through uh, ancient egyptian tombs that being said nobody robs an ancient tomb
2: quite like uh, like a victorian era uh, <laughs> western explorer uh uh-huh. so uh as a science journalist joe marchant explains in their uh, ian magazine article the mummy's curse um the Corelli here was, was kind of ground zero for all of this curse nonsense. So she uh, – at the time, she admonished George Herbert, the, the fifth earl of Carnarvon, for his uh, involvement in an ar- archaeological dig in Egypt, in particular the, the tomb of Tutankhamen. And, uh, and then an interesting thing happened. Herbert died from a mosquito-borne illness in a Cairo hotel. Okay, or one assumes it was a mosquito born illness because it he was bitten by a mosquito and then grew ill and died so, okay,
0: but so he's a guy involved in in excavating the tomb and he dies of some illness right, and so the stories begin to
2: spin out from there the, the, from there the idea going around that uh, that British archaeologist Howard Carter, who is also a part of this particular um, uh, endeavor that he discovered a tablet warning death to tomb raiders, and that he quickly hid it away, buried it in the sand to keep the workers from seeing it. <laughs> now, as uh, as Marchand uh, explores you you had skeptics of the day saying that this was clearly all baloney uh but this was again in the midst of a spiritualist boom uh so you had famous minds including the likes of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle uh who was definitely susceptible to uh, to this line of thinking mm-hmm. uh, he 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 ends up uh, uh you know jumping in when people say well look if there's a curse why didn't Carter die from the curse too why did only one of the two uh, Principles on this dig die from the curse, and uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's response was uh, apparently, "quote One might as well say that because bulldogs do not bite everybody, therefore bulldogs do not exist," which. <laughs> is such a ludicrous uh, counter-argument. Like, this is the kind of counter-argument one expects to find on, um, you know, in, in talk radio nowadays or yeah. on, uh, you know, p- political commentating on certain channels.
0: I disagree. Incredibly
2: tight logic. It's exactly <laughs> parallel. <laughs> well, you can guess what followed, right? Anybody with the slightest connection to Herbert uh, was looped into the curse if they happened to die. And if they didn't die, well, you just ignored that, right? You only focus... Uh, this is... Uh, this is key to any kind of supernatural thinking, right? You yeah. only you only focus on uh, the, the bits of information that back up your supernatural premise. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, one of the things that we have to acknowledge here is that everybody from this scenario is dead now. So, if you want to, you could say, yeah, well... The curse must have worked because now nobody is alive uh, who, who who was originally in on the the cracking of this tomb. Time, the ultimate enforcer of all curses, right? I mean, in, in a way, it's it's perfectly safe uh, to to cast a curse because. Everybody will die and or something bad is liable to happen to everybody involved. Mm-hmm. Now, the cool thing is, is that scientists uh, and, uh, and more skeptical minds have applied our scientific understanding of uh, contagions to this idea of a mummy's curse. Uh, Egyptologist uh, Herbert Winlock published a chart in the New York Times back in 1934 that attempted to dismiss a lot of this, uh, you know, uh, mummy's curse nonsense uh, by pointing out that of uh, 40 people
0: who entered the tomb in question, only six died in the following 12 years. And some of those people who entered may have happened to be Westerners who were in – Egypt in a place with mosquito-borne diseases that they were not resistant to.
2: Oh, yeah. There's so many factors that have nothing to do with uh, any kind of supernatural model. Um, but by the way, if anybody wants to uh, to read this, uh, you can find it on the New York Times website uh, in their uh, archive. Uh, but the, the, the full title is Curse of Pharaoh Denied by Winlock, <laughs> Metropolitan Museum Director, uh, Ridicule's Tale of Malediction About Tutankhamen Tomb. Quote, the so-called curse of Tutankhamun is a superstition so wholly devoid of foundation that only the most credulous and ill-informed person can give a moment's credence to it, according to Herbert E. Winlock, director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and its curator of Egyptology.
0: So this is false on multiple levels, like mm-hmm. the, the idea of the curse of the pharaohs. It's not only not true that everybody who went in the tomb died, it's also not even true that there was a curse involved right. as far as we know.
2: Never issued, never enforced. Okay. Whereas if you listen to all of the uh, the baloney, it sounds like, oh, it was issued and it was enforced. Isn't it creepy, right? Uh-huh. Now, another individual who um, sought to apply some common sense to the scenario was uh, Mark Nelson from the University of Tasmania. And he had a study published in a 2002 edition of the British British uh, Medical uh, Journal that compared the death rates for people who entered the tomb at key times with people who were simply in Egypt. Right. Not only did uh, the tomb not make you more likely to die, uh, everyone that was analyzed in this particular, particular study generally lived twenty more years. Okay, so actually, going into the tomb seems to be like a, a fountain of youth. Well, or I think I, I think more along the line is like everybody involved whether you went into the tomb or not you had at least 20 more years yeah. so if there was a curse in place it's working like it takes that long to kick in mm-hmm. uh that's not a curse that's just that's just you living two more decades and you have to think about like the what are the what are the, the probable ages of the individuals that are uh, going out on one of these uh, expeditions right um yeah 20 years does not a curse make but the appeal of the curse uh, you know it, it seems to play I think in part on the the modern trope of uh, you know the, 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 the modern expert has has gone too far you know right. it's, it's essentially the the Frankenstein idea right
0: your curiosity led you to to places that should not be tread by humans
2: yeah and then also I can't help but suspect that there's a certain sense of um, of uh, you know buried colonial grave robbing guilt here as well you know yeah like there's maybe there's this deep idea that what I'm doing is yes it's archaeology but I'm also kind of desecrating a grave here and, uh, and 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 maybe it ends up playing on some of these like these older more primal ideas about um, the, the inherent defilement of that act.
0: Yeah, I think this is always something strange to consider in archaeology because, of course, I, I love archaeology and I mm-hmm. love what we can discover about the past from it. But it very often involves exposing things that ancient peoples did not want exposed, that they wanted left alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's true not just in Egyptian archaeology but everywhere. One, one of the funny things I find about that, though, is that the anxiety, like with the curse of the pharaohs, as an example, tends to only come up with regard to unearthing the remains or or hidden things of rich people of the past. And, you know, when you just dig up like a common mass grave from the past or something, people don't seem to worry about the same stuff. I feel like that just betrays an extra sort of level of bias in the way we think about what sort of ancient people's wishes should be honored. Yeah. If
2: your remains are old enough and you were poor enough, then nobody cares.
0: But if you were very rich, there might be
2: a curse. Yeah. You never know. If they could afford all this, then they could probably pay the, uh, the, the, the curse crafter. Now in, in in talking about curses and exploring curses there's so many different uh, cultures we could look at so many different periods of history I ended up looking around a little bit in uh, Chinese history and I ended up focusing on a a sorcery scare that occurred uh, rather late in Chinese history during the uh, the Qing dynasty the last dynasty of China that uh, that uh, lasted 1644 through 1912 mm-hmm. Now, I read before that the Qing Dynasty's penal code was rather harsh on sorcery and called for the execution of not only all those who employed spells and incantations, quote, to agitate and influence the minds of the people, but also anyone who wrote or edited books of sorcery. So all you had to do was just be the editor, it, you know, or, or one would presume like just proofreading a copy. Of a, of a sorceress uh, text uh, could uh, get you end up getting you beheaded. That's harsh. Now I read about uh, about this in the notations to uh, uh, Herbert A. Giles's translation of Pu Song Ling's Strange Tales from a Chinese Studio. Uh, this is a fabulous book. It's it's widely available in English translation, uh, and it's uh, it's from 17th century China, and it collects and retells various weird tales, mm-hmm. some of which are horrifying ghost stories about like awful spirits jumping out and gnawing on your head, well, you know strange goblins living uh, uh in the forest, that sort of thing. Others are more whimsical like a like a pin dragon uh that uh, uh infiltrates a, a, a scholar's um office. Or there's there are also a few that are kind of bawdy and uh, hilarious as well. Uh but um again, this is a book from 17th century China. And it was written in a time uh, that uh, was uh, sometimes referred to as the Troubles. Uh, and th- this was in the, the coastal province uh, of uh, Shandong. That's where uh, uh, Ling uh, uh, lived. And uh, it, it was an area subject to uh, various peasant rebellions, Manchu uprisings. They were unstable times. Okay. And then uh, during the 18th century, it was also a time of mass panic. I was looking at a book by Philip A. Kuhn uh, titled uh, Soul Stealers, The Chinese Sorcery Scare of 1768. Uh, This came out in 2006. Uh, And um, it points out that during the reign of the uh, Qinglong Emperor, a mass hysteria swept through the people. Quote, in the year 1768, on the eve of China's tragic modern age, there ran through her society a premonitory shiver. A vision of sorcerers roaming the land, stealing souls. By enchanting either the written name of the victim or a piece of his hair or clothing, the sorcerer would cause him to sicken and die. He then would use the stolen soul force for his own purposes. Now, Kuhn points out that a lot of Chinese Chinese sorcery concerns the fragility of this supposed link between the body and the soul. And he also specifically mentions the power of the beggar's curse, hmm. uh, leveled at one who, you know, refuses to give alms to the poor. Uh, quote, his polluted nature was entirely compatible with magical terrorism. So in nice. this, we, we would kind of return to that idea we talked about earlier, the idea that like the curse is kind of like it, it's, it's the last bit of power that uh, somebody in, in, a, in a reduced caste or in a reduced level of society, the last thing they have that they can turn to. If they're you know if they're on the street corner and they're asking for a coin from the from the rich man and the rich man doesn't give them to them you know what can you do you can curse them you can you can spit that curse uh, and they can't quite take that away from you they like no matter what your position in life they're they're going to have to deal
0: with that curse that you that
2: you unleashed
0: well I feel like a version of this comes through so often, even um, not just in all the real history we've been talking about of how curses have been used by people, but even in like say the witch literature. I mean, Mm -hmm. the witch we often forget is an outcast figure, right? The the witch is oppressed. The witch tends to be uh, an ugly old woman at Mm -hmm. a time when an ugly old woman generally did not hold much power in society. And at times and places where government and society are very misogynist, they would look on a single old woman with with disdain and say, you know, why should she have any say over how anything goes? And so maybe she needs some magic to have a say. Yeah, there's, I feel like there's so much to potentially unpack with
2: the idea of uh, of, uh, of 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 the the beggar figure and their power to curse. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like you've like you've reduced their stature and you've kind of associated a certain amount of pollution with them. And in doing so, you've kind of given them the power to curse you. You know? Yeah. Now, I mentioned uh, at the, the, the top of the podcast that we would come back to Lopan uh, because Lopan, in a sense, does uh, pop up in uh, Kuhn's book. So Lopan, the, the character from Big Trouble Little China, does not really exist in, um, in, in Chinese myth or history. But we do have the figure of Lu Pan, um and, he, he, and uh, he does come up in this particular bu- book, uh, Lupin being the mystic figure, uh, an inventor, Chinese god of carpentry. You have a particular book called The the Lupan Ching, and uh, this text includes instructions for the construction of a house in such a way to deal with the, quote, various kinds of carpenters, masons, and plasterers who will plot to poison, curse, and harm the owner. Whoa, why would they do that? Well, uh... (laughs) I mean on one hand maybe it's just the you know how it is dealing with contractors you never know when they're going <laughs> to curse you behind your back
0: right uh, uh, it seems to belie maybe a guilty conscience on the owner's part exactly as, as maybe you're owner. not paying them enough exactly, exactly. yeah um or just just sort of a general distrust
2: of everybody that you've um, you know I, i'm assuming in this case you're probably dealing with a a wealthy individual who's who's, be, who's either building the house for themselves or uh or for another wealthy member of society Uh, So yeah, there there, there are a number of different uh, uh, societal elements and economic factors to consider and why they might be uh, subject to being cursed or just be paranoid about being cursed.
0: Yeah, okay, I can see that. I mean generally wealth might tend to cause a sense of isolation in your brain where you start to look around at everybody else and think, oh, they're all jealous of me.
2: Well, luckily, this particular book uh, in- included some instructions uh, how to uh, how to create a counter curse against the curse-spitting contractor. Okay, what do you do? All right, so first of all, when the roof beam is raised, quote, offer a sacrifice to three types of animal. And then uh, next, recite the following secret charm to Master Lupin. Quote, evil artisans. Do you not know that poisons and curses will rebound upon yourselves and bring no harm to the owner? Let the artisan responsible for the sorcery meet misfortune. I have received the proclamation of the supreme ruler, the Jade Emperor, ordering that I shall suffer no harm from others and that all will redound to my good fortune an urgent decree. (laughs) Next, you uh, burn a copy of the charm in a private place where no pregnant woman can see it. Then you mix ashes with blood of both a black and a yellow dog, uh, dog uh, blood uh, apparently often factored into magical spells of the time. Uh, then you dissolve all of this in wine. And then when the main roof beam is raised, you serve this potion to the builders uh, and the boss of the builders, uh, they have to drink three cups of it. Whoa. And then whoever is plotting sorcery against you will perish. Also, you want to paste a vermilion ink copy of uh, this uh, this anti-curse uh, atop the roof beam.
0: That's a lot of lengths to go to. But it makes me think again how sometimes we've talked about – it sometimes it seems like magic operates on like the sunk costs kind mm-hmm. of issue. Like the more work you put into making a magic spell work, maybe the more effective it feels to you because it will become harder for you to admit that it didn't work. yeah. I, I wonder too if this is – like I wonder how much
2: of this scenario though is about legitimate concern that um, underlings will work evil sorcery against you or the, the fear that their, their, their work will be shoddy or that they might steal from you, etc. Like how much of this is, is just making up for a lack of oversight in the construction process? Uh, essentially, a do not
0: steal this book warning. That's possible, but then there's all there's just all kinds of weird psychology about the way that owners tend to resent the people who work for yeah. them. You know, uh, this is almost like a like a weird magical version of an employment contract.
2: Yeah. Now I do have to say I I have never had an experience with a contractor or a repair person et cetera where I felt that they were cursing me. Now, just in case anyone out there is listening and they're thinking, hey, well, I I worked on Robert's house or I fixed one of Robert's appliances. <laughs> Let me assure you, uh, I have never had an experience with, uh, uh, with, a, with a repair person or a contractor where I felt like they were cursing me in any way, shape, or form.
0: On the other hand, I do think you need to return that bronze vase pretty soon because I can see it's filling up with your blood <laughs> rather quickly. <laughs> what if Yelp reviews,
2: like negative R- Yelp reviews, were um, – Were overtly curses. What if they were they were worded in that way? There's probably something in the uh, uh, in the bylaws for for Yelp that uh, that prohibit you from doing that, from doing evil magic. Yeah, no evil magic, no uh, uh,
0: linguistic uh, sorcery permitted on the on the website. You know, one of the things that's interesting about curses is that it seems like words are very important to them. Like it is definitely not enough to simply think Mm -hmm. that you wish ill will to come upon somebody. It is – often the case that you need to put it down in writing or have a spell spoken aloud in in conjunction with some kind of ritual. It's putting the ill will into words that makes it real. Yeah, we see that in the, the Roman example and we certainly see it here in this Chinese
2: example, both in that it is plastered to the beam and then also the the physical writing
0: is used in a potion that will become a part of the contractor's bodies. So I think maybe this is a good opportunity to transition to talking about the psychology of curses. What's going on when people cast curse spells against others? Uh, Are curse spells maybe sometimes actually effective in a way, even though magic isn't real? I'm ready to do that. Are you ready, Robert? Yeah, let's do it. I mean, I think
2: one thing that's important to note here is that a curse need not be entirely psychological uh, or, 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 or you know, even social. But certainly if, if like someone publicly curses you, there's probably going to be a certain societal pressure. Like if you're the guy who walks by the beggar and doesn't give them a coin and the beggar curses you in front of other people, that's – I mean that's essentially like a public shaming uh, mm. to, to a certain extent. So there may well be a, pi- a price to pay uh, of, on a social level. But then if you have other examples where like a curse is perhaps uh, uh, accompanied by some sort of a monetary uh, penalty or some other kind of penalty, then uh, you know, again, it's not, mir- it's not just a psychological uh, attack. It may have these other components. But for the most part, when we're talking especially about the beggar's curse or the curse of the individual whose, whose cloak is stolen with no hope of ever getting it back, uh, all you have are the words of the curse. And in, in to, to a certain extent, they
0: might not even be heard or processed by the individual that is the target. Right. Well, I mean, it's important to think about the curse existing at two levels. It's mm-hmm. working at two levels on one level or maybe you could even say three levels. One is it works on the person who casts the curse. The other is that it works on the, you know, the target of the curse. And the third is that it works on the society in general, the people who, you know, the context, people who observe the curse happening. Um, Now, to focus first on the idea of the, the target of the curse, like you have had a curse put on you. Are there ways that that might actually be effective, that you might think that you are actually suffering from a curse even though there's no magic? And I think quite clearly the answer to that is yes. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of psychological power um, like the – I guess we should talk about the nocebo effect.
2: Yeah, yeah. We've we've talked about this on the show before in the past. Uh, There was an episode from I think 2011 – about placebos, and mm-hmm. then we of course ended up talking about nocebos, which is in in the same way that a curse is the kind of the opposite of a prayer mm-hmm. uh, or a, or a blessing uh, the nocebo effect is the the dark reflection of the placebo effect
0: exactly so we're all very aware of the placebo effect now right so mm-hmm. the human body responds favorably sometimes to treatments that don't actually chemically do anything to you so you've got pain in your shoulder and I give you a pill and tell you it's a painkiller even. even Even though the pill contains no medicine whatsoever, many people will report that their symptoms are being healed. And sometimes the expectation of benefit leads people to have a greater chance of improvement over the baseline from all kinds of negative conditions. The effect is powerful enough that it's a standard part of the scientific method in medicine. We always have to control for placebo effect if you want your study to be valid. Yeah, and
2: placebo effect is, uh, is one of the reasons that any number of like faith healing or uh, alternative medicine, uh, th- th- these various uh, practices may be. Perceived Perceived as having a positive benefit because they they may well have a, a marginally measurable positive benefit in the short term. But it's all due to the placebo effect.
0: Or, well, there, I'd say there are actually two things. Mm-hmm. Placebo effect is a strong part. Another strong part I want to mention just real quick is the idea of regression to the mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sometimes I think people overstate the power of the placebo effect, attributing almost magical powers to it. I'm sure you've encountered this too where people think it proves some kind of a radical mind over matter state of affairs. Mm-hmm. I don't think it goes that far. Though it, the placebo effect is very real and very interesting and absolutely worth talking about. It's not like you know a, a magic, almost psychic power kind of right. thing. Right. Sometimes
2: it can be presented almost like it's it's like a lucid dreaming, right? Yeah. Like I have broken free from the boundaries
0: of my physical body. Thank yeah. you, placebo effect fact, I'll hail the mighty sugar pill. Right. I've, I've changed the laws of chemistry with yeah. my brain. It, no. Uh, and, and the idea of regression to the mean is important to understand because, in fact, many placebo effects can probably be attributed to it. Uh, whenever you hear the words – this is a science term, you, regression to the mean. Basically, you can just think of regression to the mean as going back to normal. Mm-hmm. So most of the time you're in a position to be studied for some kind of medical treatment. It's because something has gone wrong with your body. And often after something goes wrong with your body, eventually you just get better, right? Whether or not you got any kind of treatment. Something went wrong and then it went away. So to test the real effectiveness of placebo's qua placebo effect, you would need to not only get a test group getting the real treatment under study – And then a test group getting a fake treatment, the placebo group, but also a group that gets no treatment whatsoever and compare the three of those. In many cases, a significant number of people will get better even despite getting no treatment at all. But then usually on top of that, you'll get more people getting better in the placebo group, people who think that they're getting treated even though they're not getting anything that does anything chemically real to their body. But like we said, uh, placebo is robustly observed, very real. Anyway, the nocebo effect is the evil twin of the placebo effect. If a placebo can make you feel like you're getting better when there's no physical cause, the nocebo can make you feel worse when there's no physical cause. Yeah, this is the
2: idea that the sugar pill is hurting me as opposed to the sugar pill is healing me.
0: Yeah, and so in uh, randomized placebo-controlled trials of drugs and other medical treatments, people in the placebo group sometimes report not only Feeling better despite not receiving the real drug. Sometimes they report negative side effects Mm -hmm. despite not receiving the real drug. And researchers have determined that this is likely due to the process of informed consent, right? So before you sign up to an experiment, subjects have to be told of any known adverse side effects that they might experience due to the drug, even if they end up sorted into the control group. So having been informed of those possible side effects, people sometimes experience and report them even though they're not. Not getting any active ingredients. In other words, a placebo effect for bad things. And there are all kinds of examples of this. One of them is that the nocebo effect can absolutely make people feel pain. Uh, An example cited in – I was just reading an article about this in Science from 2017 by Luana Kaloka. And uh, Kaloka writes about uh, there's a concurrent study in in the journal that talks about how the you, so you can take two creams. I'm to put some creams on your skin, Robert. Okay. And these two creams are actually both placebos. Neither of them do anything. But I've told you that one of – or I've given you indications, say visual indications, that one of them is very expensive and one of them is very cheap. And what I tell you they're supposed to do is they will stop itching, but they will increase your sensitivity to pain in the affected area. So not only does this cause people to think that they are experiencing heightened pain, they actually think that the more expensive-looking cream causes them to feel more pain – I think there's another thing going on there that's interesting with like the idea of you having to cast a spell that involves like a cost, like you pay the yeah. scribe. Or uh, you have to do a lot of steps, like it building the house, you know, that's something that's costly to you. It seems like the more you spend on a magical spell or a curse, maybe the more effective it is because of some version of, of this effect. Like the, the more expensive cream seems like it's giving you worse side effects. Yeah, and plus just the sunk
2: cost, right? I've put this much time and energy yeah. into this uh, magic magical vendetta it has to work
0: that's exactly yeah that's exactly what i mean now, Kaloka just notes something very uh, quickly that I thought was kind of interesting. What are the evolutionary explanations for the placebo and nocebo effects? Why would there be a pressure on the, the creation of our brains through evolution to feel better or worse depending on suggestion rather mm. than actual physical stimuli? Uh, and she, she mentions, quote, in evolutionary terms, nocebo and placebo effects coexist to favor perceptual mechanisms that anticipate Threat and dangerous events, nocebo effects, and promote appetitive and safety behaviors in placebo effects. So it's almost like giving you a taste of what's to come. I think this also makes sense if you you
2: unroot um, our experience with placebo and and nocebo nocebo effect. If you if you try and take it outside of the context of. of of the human mind and thinking so intently about the future and worrying about what the future is. And you think of it in terms of like a longer biological history of, you know, essentially like a dog eating grass when its stomach is bothering it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, So so you can clearly see how something like the nocebo effect could be at play in somebody who knows they're the target of a curse, Mm -hmm. right? If you're the target of a curse— it it might not do everything to you. Like somebody who curses you and says, "May he grow horns" or something right. like that. That's not going to happen.
2: But if it is something like, "May your urine sting ever so slightly when you urinate," or, or more more in, intently, "May your may your stomach hurt," may you yeah. have stomach pains. Exactly. And then you might start thinking, "I think I might have stomach pains." I think there's something going on, and then. There, to a certain extent, is something going on via the nocebo
0: effect. Yeah, so we know we're vulnerable to stuff like this. And I think in those kinds of cases, curses could actually be highly effective depending on if the person believes that the curse could be effective and especially if the curse appears expensive, like the more expensive cream. (laughs) And if it is creating –
2: stress in the body. That's always something to look at, too, because when we feel heightened levels of stress, there can be physical ramifications for that. There are limits to that, as we'll discuss in a minute. But still, stress in the body can have ill effects on the body.
0: Yes, and now, here's another way that we could think of curses as maybe being effective. It, just in what you're talking about, the idea of the 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 threat of a curse causing stress or anxiety, mm-hmm. um, what about the cases where the person's cloak is stolen and the person doesn't know who stole the cloak and they cast a curse anyway? How could that be doing anything? Well, I would argue that maybe that could in sort of like a, an economic standpoint. Mm-hmm. So – Take the context of the cursed tablets against an unknown thieves. So let's say you're a member uh, of the you know the common classes in in the ancient Mediterranean somewhere. One of your most valuable possessions gets stolen. Somebody takes your bronze pot or somebody takes your cloak, and you live in a time and place when the authorities are not very helpful to you. They might be uh, they might not be especially interested in solving the case or getting your stuff back, especially if you're poor. And I checked out what what it was like in the Roman Empire, like if you got your stuff stolen. I was trying to find evidence of what you would do, right? You know, If you could go to the police or something, what kind of access to justice you would have. And as far as I could tell, the Romans did at different periods have various internal forces which might be thought of as something like police, like uh, the vigiles or the watchmen or the urban cohorts. But I've not found any evidence that these forces would actually help common people in solving petty crimes. Maybe they did in some cases, but I've not found anything about that. It seems more like they were oriented toward heavy jobs like firefighting or putting down riots or violent gangs or mobs. It's almost more like an uh, you know, a, a domestic military force or something. It is just so difficult
2: for the modern listener to imagine this world you're describing, Joe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, there are many. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of people do not have access to any kind of police force that could give them justice on a small scale. hmm And even if you're privileged enough to like have access to a police force who's going to take down a report about you getting your cloak stolen or something like that, they're probably not going to be able to get it back for you. Yeah,
2: a lot of times that written report is about as useful as a written curse you might pay for. (laughs) That's Uh, a good point. your, Your tax dollars are paying for that written curse, I suppose.
0: So the state can't help you. You don't really have the power to take matters into your own hands, especially if you're not sure who the culprit is. So what can you do about your stolen cloak? Well, you go to the temple and you pay a scribe to write out a curse tablet for you. It's not actually magic, but imagine if enough people do this and believe in the power of the curses to find and inflict pain on the culprits, I wonder if it might actually discourage thieves from preying on the powerless to begin with, right? If you're surrounded by these curse tablets nailed up everywhere, they're giving you all these reminders that if I steal something from somebody, I might get a curse cast against me and that would be really bad. Then I wouldn't be able to defecate or, you know, I'd bleed into a pot or have sexual problems or something that might prevent me from stealing somebody's cloak to begin with.
2: Yeah, this this almost makes me want to devote an episode to – to figuring out like what you know what sort of mindset the career uh, cloak thief or career criminal might have had then in ancient times were they perhaps okay with being cursed were they to some degree or even a large degree uh, did they see through the baloney of the curse mm-hmm. and like realize this is just a bunch of people who are angry because I'm really good at stealing cloaks uh, but so far I can still urinate so I'm in the clear or uh, were there perhaps other magical protections like ultimately. Does the does the does the the, the curse uh, spitting only work within a certain uh, uh, religious worldview? And if you have a slightly different uh, religion, or perhaps different religious values, or uh, perhaps you worship another god, then you're protected. At any rate, it still make it probably it still definitely makes the the individual feel good. Like, well, I'm not going to get that cloak back, but at least I got this curse rolled out.
0: Yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, it's hard to look into the to the minds of ancient people and know whether. They expected it to work or maybe – I don't know. Maybe it's possible that people who were putting these – you know, paying to get these curses done or writing them themselves or whatever were not always expecting to actually get their thing back. But they were trying to create a kind of curse culture that might offer a deterrent from committing crimes. It was almost like an altruistic, you know, for the greater good kind of thing that I'm doing to discourage cloak stealing in general. All right.
2: Well, on that note, we're going to do one more break. And again, you'll be cursed if you skip the
0: advertisement, Uh, but then we'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. So we've been talking about the ways that curses, even though they're not magic, might be effective in one way or another. They might be effective against the target of the curse via the nocebo effect. Mm -hmm. They might be effective on the society in general via some kind of uh, magic belief system in a deterrent or that would create a deterrent from committing crimes or something. Um, Then I wonder how they work on the self. One quick idea I had, I, I don't have a whole lot to say about this, but just a thought is I wonder if sometimes a curse could be a psychological self-manipulation technique, like a way to persuade yourself to fully turn against someone you previously had some kind of relationship. Uh, probably not what the curse is against like unknown enemies, you know, whoever took mm-hmm. my cloak. But when you're cursing somebody you know, it almost reminds me of, um, you know, sometimes you see people like... In movies and stuff like they go through a breakup or something and the, while they're going through the breakup, they just suddenly say lots of really mean, hurtful things to the person they're breaking up with. And obviously, you, you know, you see that. So, you know, that happens sometimes in reality. That's that's based off people's experiences. And I, I wonder if people do stuff like that to help themselves m- – enforce a clean break. It's like, you know, like, once I say something like this, I've crossed the line and now this person is, quote, dead to me or, you know, th- that you're not going to go back and rekindle the relationship. Perhaps, but
2: then also these curses feel so formal that it feels like it would be easier to take back a formal curse than something that is, uh, uh, that is you know, that, that you just say in a moment of, uh, of anger, you know, those things that you can truly never unsay.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I wonder, but I wonder also if putting it into words written down is a way of trying to make it like untake backable from, you know, like if somebody's written it on a lead sheet and then nailed it up somewhere. You, you can't say like, I take it back. Now it's external to you. You've made the, the curse and you're, you're that person is dead to me sentiment, sort of public and unalterable.
2: I don't know. People take down crazy uh, Facebook uh, and Twitter uh, posts every day. <laughs> Though I guess sometimes you have, you can say my account was hacked. Sorry, that right. curse was not really
0: uh, intended for everybody. But I mean there are a lot of ways that I think modern behaviors like you're talking about could be considered equivalent to curses. I mean putting aside people who would still practice some form of witchcraft and like literally think they're enacting evil magic against somebody else. uh, There are other like modern equivalents of curses I think.
2: Yeah, I mean just to go back to social media, I think we've probably all seen examples of someone pointing out some wrongdoing and saying – in varying degrees of viciousness saying like i hope something bad happens to you because of this yeah but then also you see the the opposite of that sometimes where someone is going out of their way to to either not make a curse or even to a certain extent kind of bless Mm -hmm. the perpetrator uh you know where someone says like hey whoever it was who mugged me uh the other day uh I, I hope I hope you find the help that you need. You know that that sort of uh, statement, which can be a very positive statement to make, and you see someone make a statement like that, and you, you you're like, yeah, this is a person who had every right to curse the individual who wronged them, but they did not, and there's something noble in that. Yeah. But it's kind of playing upon the same energy of the curse. It is in the it is in the tradition of the curse, uh, even if it is um, if it is a
0: you know, significant improvement. Yeah, I can see that, and of course, I mean, we should not ignore that. Modern religions that are widely practiced do have things that are, I don't know, maybe not exactly like the you know curse tablets or something, but are in some form like invoking of supernatural authority against someone. Oh
2: yeah, I mean you can still find yourself excommunicated in uh, any number of, uh, of of faiths and denominations where you are essentially kicked out of the religion and uh, any. Uh, rewards that might await you in the afterlife are therefore denied you and uh, time was when you could uh, you could essentially uh, perform this on an entire nation uh, what a writ of uh, interdict I believe
0: yeah I think uh, uh, well I, I just looked up uh, Pope Innocent the Third issued an interdict against Norway it's just <laughs> like Norwegians you, you're out sorry on I the outside
2: curse on all of you uh, until uh, presumably you, you know work things out um, and there are forms of uh, excommunication in other religions as well. Um, in uh, in Islamic traditions, there is takfir, which is a contentious uh, uh, declaration that an individual is a non-believer that uh, is sometimes compared to excommunication. Uh, and uh, there was a, a practice of caste excommunication in medieval India. And in Judaism, there is uh, harem, which uh, is uh, supposedly similar as well. Now, if you turn on evangelical television programming in the United States, or if you've had the opportunity to watch any of it um, uh, in the last uh, few decades, you've probably seen a lot of prayer activity. And um, and as well as sometimes something that could definitely be considered a curse, right? So if you're praying to God to invoke uh, religious texts, uh, you know, to spit doom at someone in particular, then you're, I think you're essentially talking about a curse. Again, it comes back to the idea of the, the protester with the sign. They may see it as them just invoking... The rule, or reminding everybody how God
0: works, but when push comes to shove, how is that different, really? Well, yeah, I mean, it, from the from the third party's perspective, it looks a lot like a curse. The person might say, "No, no, 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 I'm not making this happen. I'm just telling you how it is." But the victim or the target of this threat is probably going to perceive it essentially as being something like a curse, like I I cast down ill fortune upon you.
2: Yeah, like so many so many different religions, like any religion that has a theology of hell. Essentially, you have a um, a built in revenge fantasy, and uh, and I think this plays into some of the psychology of the curse, issuing the curse, right? Like I'm I, I can't actually get back at whoever stole this cloak from me, but in my mind they're suffering. In my mind they're they're going to be tormented, and that's essentially what any hell theology really is. Like oh, those people who didn't believe like me, or the the, the people who actually did something nefarious in life, they may get away with it now, but. Uh, uh, in the afterlife, they will they will burn. And in my
0: mind, they are burning in the depraved notions that I have incorporated into my worldview. Well, you could also say in like the economic example we gave that perhaps a belief like that might create a deterrent among people from doing something negative. Unfortunately, now I think you could take strong issue with saying that that A, that it was worth it to mm-hmm. do that deterrent or B, that it actually worked or did anything. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and this we kind of get into the whole uh, you know, theological idea that uh, that if people are not uh, threatened with hell, they will just they won't they won't obey any law, right?
0: Right. I I don't put much stock in that.
2: But for my money, especially in, in today's world, if anyone has any kind of um, uh, access to the uh, uh, to the marketplace of of religious ideas, like you you ultimately choose which version of a particular faith you're going to adhere to, and if you choose the one with the more elaborate. Uh, you know, all-inclusive uh, revenge fantasy, uh, then you were deciding like what curses you want to level against nonbelievers or uh, people who have, uh, uh, who
0: have sinned, et cetera. Yeah, it's sort of a curse by interpretation. Yeah. And then, of course, you
2: have plenty of individuals in, in our modern world who have, if they're not actually cursing people, they're at least pushing the narrative that there are those out there who are cursing. Uh-huh uh, there have been specific examples with uh uh Pat Robertson's claim that Satanists were cursing babies or uh Alec Jones uh saying that witches were using curses and witchcraft uh, against Donald Trump that sort of thing
0: wait does Jones believe that the curse or does he claim to believe that the curses are working? <laughs> I don't know. You'd have to ask uh, Alex Jones about that. Uh, But to pick up on what you're saying, a a curse can also serve as a a form sort of of public shaming, right? You know, it's been hypothesized that the Bath curse tablets, I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, may have been publicly displayed, meaning that people could see the allegations. They could Mm -hmm. sympathize with the victim. They could shame or punish the perpetrator. They could help the victim with details, maybe to discover who the perpetrator was. Like – Something about this historical uh, scenario is saying maybe it wasn't just the magical qualities. I mean these people probably did believe in curses and believe there was a magic kind of work being done. But it also might have also been just kind of like the curse is part of a public bulletin board system. that helps keep everybody informed about crimes that are going on and, and what your friend might need help with. Now I'm also reminded in all of this of uh prosperity churches.
2: Uh you know, churches that uh, in many cases they interpret poverty or even illness as divine punishment, as is essentially a curse from God. Which which uh which really really plays into this older idea, right? If things if bad things are happening to people and we don't know why, we 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 end up uh, uh attributing all of these magical causes to it. Uh, and we still see this throughout the world. I mean, there, there, there are a number of different examples. I was looking at a particular paper, though, published in the journal PLOS One uh, from researchers at the University of East Anglia. And they point out that many people in rural African communities still believe that disability uh, occurs due to some sort of supernatural force, uh, such as curses, uh, such as uh, you know, a demon afflicting a child, that sort of thing. Uh, and th- these are caused by wrongdoing. So, uh, for instance, it, uh, one of the common uh, versions of this is there's a, there's infidelity and therefore the, the, the child of that infidelity is punished with some sort of deformity. But the researchers found that as medical understanding uh, grows, parents are more likely to seek medical aid first rather than a witch doctor to, you know, interpret – Uh, what is going on, like why this deformity has taken place, etc. This particular research was conducted conducted in uh, Kenya, by the way. But I I think it does illustrate, you know, why the idea of a curse works so well, you know. Right, because
0: it can, what, play on anxieties you have about guilt and inadequacy?
2: Yeah, and then on top of just not having access to information about how, say, deformities work, how, how medical science works, you know, that sort of thing. And then also, especially if the, 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 uh, the curse is vague enough, I mean, we're all going to violate a moral value to some extent at some point. We're all going to do something we are not proud of and we feel guilty about. And then something that we can interpret as bad luck is going to happen to all of us. I mean, if nothing else, you may find yourself in a situation where you accidentally say a swear word in front of a child. And then later you'll stub your toe. Oh. And, if you, and, and if you wanted to, if there, was a, if there was support for this interpretation in your worldview, you could say, oh, uh, the, the god of toe stubbing punished me for having sworn in front of that child.
0: So it's quite easy for us to make ourselves the victims of magical causality via magical thinking even if, you know, nobody else out there is telling you I'm cursing you.
2: Yeah, because we, as we've discussed plenty of times in the show before, our brains are just pattern recognition engines and we'll often make connections that are not really there. And uh, and this is where we see so many different magical ideas about how the world works emerging, right? Um you know, even outside of traditional beliefs uh, and and the developing world, uh, who I mean, who out there has encountered the 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 negative people get cancer model? Oh yeah, you know? that
0: kind of Western New Age thinking is like you know what? It's like the secret kind of
2: yeah. And and I can see why this is attractive too, because in the same way that if, if one doesn't have access to um, like a modern scientific understanding of, of disease, they might be uh, susceptible to. Um, to, to some sort of magical explanation, I can see where even with access to uh, uh, to a medical understanding of the world, if the if modern medicine is not able to, you know, provide the level of um, of treatment, that you would require, I can see where you might turn to some of these magical ideas, you know, or you might sort of stumble back into them, or even sort of have them at the same time. I mean, we're certainly capable of having two um, conflicting ideas in our head at the same time, where on one level, you know what cancer is, and you know that it has nothing to do with your personality or your life decisions, but still somewhere in the back of your mind, there's that old a bit of magical thinking sort of clawing at the door, you know, trying to, to, to tear you down into believing some other uh, bit of nonsense
0: about it. Yeah, you brought all this on yourself with, like you say, all that negative thinking.
2: Yeah. Now, that being said, uh, psychological stress can and does have an effect on the body in many ways. Stress can cause a number of physical health problems, but uh, the, the experts uh, say, if you look, you can find this answer if you look at uh, cancer.gov, uh, the link between stress and cancer is weak at best.
0: Yeah, though I, as we explained earlier of course that we know all about nocebo effects and stuff so i can certainly yeah. see that ways uh you know that the ways you're thinking could have especially effects on the subjective experience of the negative parts of an illness right pain might feel like it hurts more if there if your brain is in certain states of, of bad feelings or bad expectations or expectations that you will feel pain
2: so it's interesting any way you cut it uh... Uh, the, the curse, at one, on one hand, the curse has no power. The curse is just pure magical thinking. But on the other hand, uh, a curse carries some weight. And that's probably why uh, people uh, have, been, uh, have been spitting curses at each other uh, for so long and will continue to do so in one form or another.
0: Yeah, I think you're right.
2: Really, I'm surprised there aren't more curses today because I imagine a curse gives you a certain amount of legal protection. Like if, <laughs> like if you threaten somebody... Uh, you can be uh, arrested like that. That it, that is a that is is a crime. But is it a crime to curse someone? Is it a crime to invoke uh, divine uh, powers against them?
0: So if you say I will make you unable to defecate, that that's a crime, right? I, but if if you say uh, I will invoke Maglus to make it unable, make you unable to defecate, eh? You know. Yeah, I feel like that's a harder sell to the local police force. <laughs> I guess one last thing I would end on is I would say. When I think about curses and stuff, I think it's the kind of thing that even though I don't believe in magic, I think it's the kind of thing you shouldn't do really. Mm-hmm. Because you know, because it does have these effects, especially I would say effects on the self, like even if you don't tell the person about it, you know, it it, it kind of dirties your mind to cast a curse. Wishing ill on other people hurts you. It hurts your hurts your mind, it hurts your character.
2: Absolutely. So, hopefully, in this episode we've uh, we've been able to you know to to make you rethink the world of uh, of the curse. And heck, we didn't even get into the idea of cursed items and allegedly cursed items so much, but that's a whole other area that we could potentially explore in the future. yeah, in the meantime, uh, you should check out our website. No curses at all to be found at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, links out to our various social media accounts, a button for our store at the top of the page where you can buy some cool uh, merchandise, shirts, stickers, etc. It's a great way to support the show. And if you want to support our show without spending any money at all,
0: just simply go to wherever you get the podcast and rate and review us. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you'd like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
2: the first time, every time, all your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2 and streaming on NFL Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus. Visit nfl.com/schedule release to learn more. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. To see more, visit CVShealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.